right. Well, as again, as we said several times, today we celebrate the most important moment in Christianity, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And uh, not as just the resurrection important to our faith, the resurrection is really what defines our faith. The resurrection for the Christian is, is kind of the New Testament version of what Passover was in the Old Testament. It is very much the defining aspect of who we are as believers and what it means for us to be in that faith. Sorry, that was my fault. And in the resurrection, we have the vindication of all the claims that Jesus made about himself. And it's that proof of his victory over, over sin and death. And not only that, but it's also a demonstration of what we can expect in our own lives as believers in Christ, that we can expect a resurrection where our bodies will be similar but not quite the same as they were, and we'll be in that place of eternal life with our Father. And as we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, if you've been with us for a while, we've been, we've been making our way through the Gospel of Matthew. A few weeks ago, we saw that the Pharisees had asked Jesus for a sign. If you remember, as we're going through Matthew chapter 12, there, there were three places where Jesus' authority was being uh, challenged. One was in his attitude toward the Sabbath. The other was in his, in that, in his uh, relationship or how he dealt with exorcism and his command over the spiritual world. And finally, there is in the place of signs. And the Pharisees wanted a sign. And if you remember, Jesus' response to the Pharisees was this. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign. But none will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. And if you remember, during chapter 12, Jesus would make these statements of greatness, like one greater than the temple is here, and the signs ones, one's greater than Jonah is here. Now, Jesus was a very good teacher. I don't think I need to tell you that. And he was very good with words. He was the very word of God made flesh, so he was very clever in the ways that he would use his words. And Jesus knew how to get people's attention. And Jesus knows that there's just something within us that is kind of drawn to the dark side of things. It's not a good thing. It's just the way we are. It's that thing that makes us slow down on the Autobahn when we, when we think that there's a, an accident, you know, and you slow down and you can't help but kind of want to take a look and see what happened there. There's that little bit of darkness that we tend to be drawn to, the negative. And Jesus knows this and he uses it throughout his teachings. And in an example here, he talks about, you know, the men of Nineveh are going to judge those of his generation because they repented, but this generation is not. And he does this, and he uses this kind of negative to get our attention more than once. Let's look at a few examples real quick. One is when he talks about the parables, and we'll go into this more deeply later. But he says, The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked its way through the dough. Now this, again, this might not seem like much to us because we don't really come from a, the Jewish background. Many of us didn't grow up Jewish. But to the Jewish years that Jesus was speaking to at the time, this would sound strange because yeast or leaven wasn't considered unclean, but it was never allowed to be in the bread that was presented upon the altar. 
Now, again, yeast didn't make the bread unclean. In fact, if you read the scripture, the bread upon the altar was to have no yeast, but the bread given to the priest was to have leaven in it. It was to be a leavened bread. And of course, the reason behind this is because the, the unleavened bread represents the hurriedness of the, past, of the, the exodus from Egypt, how the, Egypt, how the Israelis, Israelites didn't have time to really prepare bread and allow it to rise. They had to move quickly. And so like when they eat the Passover meal, you have bread that doesn't have any yeast in it. They're supposed to eat standing up as if you're in a hurry to leave anytime soon. But it would sound strange because one of the, one of the, the things that I, the, the man of the family was to do in Jewish families is before the Passover was to search the house to make sure all the leaven or all the yeast was gone. And in fact, to this day, Jewish households on the Passover will often hide a piece of bread somewhere in the house and the dad has to go try and find it. It becomes kind of a, a game with the kids. So for Jesus to say the kingdom of God is like this leaven or the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that works through the dough, that would sound strange. That would kind of make them go, what, what, what's he saying here? Another place that Jesus does this probably more starkly is in the Gospel of Luke chapter 16 where he uses the example of a dishonest manager who is cheating his master. And the dishonest manager finds out that he's going to be fired. And so in the, in the parable, he then goes to all the people that owe his master money and he cuts down the amount that they owe him so that he, the dishonest manager, when he's fired, will have made some friends out there in the world. It's a very strange parable because Jesus ends it like this. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are people of the light. Jesus is basically saying people of the light aren't as good at cheating others as people in the world. But he says it's shrewd. And then he says this very strange verse here. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. That's a very strange parable. It's a very strange and mixed message, to say the least, isn't it? And he follows it up with a message we would expect him to say about basically one's relationship with money. He says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest with much. So if you've been untrustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And these, these two sections of Scripture are right next to each other. You go from verse 9 to verse 10. And 10 through, that we just read here, 10 through 13, this is what we would expect Jesus to say. And I think one reason why Jesus does this, he uses this negative example, is because, again, it catches our attention. It is such an odd way of approaching things that you can't help but listen because you want to know where this guy is going. How is he going to follow this up? And he follows it up with this teaching that we just read. And so when he says that the Pharisees will be given the sign of the prophet Jonah, I believe this is another example of Jesus using this kind of comparison. Because... Except for the obvious things that Jesus says. He says, you know, the, the obvious comparison is where Jonah is in the belly of the whale for three days, so too the Son of Man will be in the earth for three days. Okay, that's an obvious comparison. 
And he does compare the opposites of the, the Ninevites versus the people of Jesus' generation. And this comes to the point, when you look more closely at what the story of Jonah is, and you compare it to the story of Jesus, what you find is that you have similarities in that Jesus is almost the very opposite of Jonah in almost every way. And this is where the, the comparison is a comparison, but it's a comparison of opposites. For example, on just a very basic level, when Jonah was in the belly of the fish, Jonah's alive. And he's within a living, wiggling, swimming being. Everything about Jonah's experience is an experience of life, however terrifying. He's alive. The fish is alive. Everything is alive. Whereas Jesus, it's the opposite. Jesus in the tomb is dead. And he's in a place that is still and that is cold and is silent. And so you see that there's a comparison, but it's a comparison that is made more stark in the, in the opposite. It's made more clear at the comparison in that they're opposite. And so what I did is I went through, the, went through the book of Jonah and I looked through the gospel for other places where you see this opposite thing take place. And it's really pretty interesting that in every way, like I said, Jonah is kind of the opposite of Jesus. Let's look at some examples. For one, Jonah hated the people he was called to help. He didn't just, he didn't run from the call of God because he was afraid. He ran from the call of God because he hated the people of Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Jonah was a prophet during the time when the northern kingdom of Israel was still standing. And the Assyrians eventually do conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. But before they get conquered by the Assyrians, God tells Jonah to go and, and preach repentance to Nineveh. And Jonah doesn't want to do that. Why? Because he's afraid? No. He doesn't want to do it because he does not want the Ninevites to repent. He wants God to crush the Ninevites. He wants that. And if you don't think that that's what he wanted, you look at the end of chapter 4, which the book of Jonah is pretty short, and when God relented from bringing disaster upon the city of Nineveh because they did repent, this is how the story goes. It says, Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were a generous and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God that relents from sending calamity. When you read the book of Jonah, it's actually kind of funny when you realize, when you get over the shock of really what this is saying, is that he runs from God because he wants God to destroy Nineveh. And when he preaches repentance to the city of Nineveh, he doesn't do so with his heart going, please come to the Lord or repent or else you're going to be destroyed. I imagine he's just like, the Lord said you're going to be destroyed, and I hope you are. And maybe that was the edge to his preaching. Maybe there's this angry edge to it that the Ninevites paid attention now, we do know that while they may be spared during this time of, of uh, Jonah, eventually the, Nineveh, the city of Nineveh is destroyed, and it's destroyed by this coalition of, of under kingdoms, which eventually leads to the Babylonian kingdom and the Babylonian empire rising up, and that has King Nebuchadnezzar and, and other characters which some of you are familiar with. But this attitude of Jonah is really the exact opposite of Jesus' attitude. I mean, Jesus comes with a message of repentance and hope. Why? Because he loves. He loves the people he was sent to. 
The, the most famous scripture that we have is John 3.16. It says, for, those, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And so you see a, an opposite attitude as to the coming. Whereas Jonah ran from the call of God, Jesus was preordained, the Son, the very word of God made flesh, the scripture tells us, was preordained to come and to be the Messiah from before the beginning of the world, before the creation of the world. And another interesting opposite is the people of the story. Whereas the prophet Jonah has this bad attitude throughout the story, the other people around Jonah actually have a pretty good attitude. The sailors are, are, are pretty... Uh, honorable in their, in their dealings with Jonah, and even the people of Nineveh, the horrible people of Nineveh. Let's look at the sailors, for example. The scripture tells us that when Jonah was out there in the ocean, the sea starts to get rough. This happens. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they, the sailors, asked Jonah, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? And Jonah, to his credit, he, he's willing to sacrifice because he knows he's the cause of this, of this calamity going on in the ocean. He says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. He replied, and it will become calm. For I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. But this is where you see the quality of these sailors. It says, instead, the men did their best to row back to land. They didn't want to throw Jonah in. They, he, he gives them this suggestion, and their response is, ah, before we throw you off the, off the boat, let's try our best to get you back to land. You know, they're not being uh, disobedient at this point. They're really trying to be compassionate, and they want this guy to survive. But, as we know the story, they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before, because God, in spite of the sailors' best efforts and intentions, he had a different intention. And so their best and good intentions were frustrated. And so they cried out to the Lord. And it's interesting here that these sailors cry out, and according to the prayer that they give, they use the name Yahweh. They use the name of the God of Israel. And there's no, there's no sense that before this that these sailors are Israelites. In fact, they're not Israelites. We know that. They, they, they regarded the prophet Jonah as a, as a bit of an anomaly, and he's singled out from them because he is an Israelite. But when it comes to the, the rubber meeting the road and, and they're in this desperate situation, they call upon the name of the Lord. And they say, Oh Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O oh Lord, have done as you pleased. Now this is almost the exact opposite of the cries of the people when Jesus was to be crucified, right? When Pilate says, Why are you doing this? And who's going to be accountable for his blood? And the people say, we will be accountable for his blood. They call for an accountability in Jesus' own crucifixion. The Jewish people, his own people, call to be accountable. Whereas in this case, the sailors say, we don't want to be accountable. We don't want to do this. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. So the people that Jonah hated actually responds then. I mean, so then we have the sailors there, and then you have the people in Nineveh. How do they respond to his preaching? Well, to the, to the great displeasure of Jonah, they listen to him. And I can't, I can't really identify with that. There's not too many people who preach that don't want to be listened to. But Jonah, 
is disappointed because the Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, all of them, from the greatest to the least, and put on sackcloth. That means that they went into a place of repentance. And when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. And who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did and that they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. Now under Ashurbanipal, who becomes the next king of Nineveh, the people go back to those evil ways, and it's under Ashurbanipal that eventually Nineveh falls, actually right after he dies. So you compare this to how the people acted during the crucifixion. Did they, did they see what Christ had done? Did they repent of their sin? Did they? No. When Jesus was brought before the high priest, the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are Christ, the Son of God. No more messing around. Tell us plainly, are you the Christ? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand, the Mighty One, and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is actually a reference back to the prophet Daniel. And the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. And then they spit in his face, and they struck him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Christ. Who hit you? And then he's taken to Pilate, who is the Roman governor, and says that he had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. Then the government, governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him, took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. And after they had mocked him, they took off the robe, put on his own clothes, and they led him away to crucify him. And then while he's on the cross, he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And in the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So in short, we see that this comparison of Jonah to Jesus is really a comparison of opposites, not just between Jonah and Jesus, but between those who heard the words of repentance, between the people of Nineveh and the people of Jerusalem, between the sailors and the, and the officials of both the high priest and the governor. But this opposite also continues in how both Jonah and Jesus respond to their resurrected life, in the sense of Jonah being resurrected and that he's vomited onto the, 
the shore by this giant fish, and he gets a second chance at life. Like I said, we look after him. We, we see the story of Jonah. He goes to the city. He does what he's supposed to do. He preaches to them. He preaches words of repentance to them. And then he goes out and waits for God to destroy them because that's what he wants to have happen. In fact, the, the, the Scripture tells us that after he, gets, he has this angry response with God, which he's just read, that, you know, this is why I didn't want to leave. I knew you were a compassionate God. Then it said, Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city where he made himself a shelter, and he sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. And Joseph waited, I mean, Jonah waiting for this was kind of rubbing his hands together. He wanted to see the fireworks. He wanted to see some good old-fashioned Old Testament justice being met out here. And he was looking forward to being able to write the description of the destruction of the evil city of Nineveh. And it seemed like God was on his side because the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. The vine was making his, his day good. He could sit back in the shade, get ready to write about the, the, the hellfire and brimstone that was going to fall down on, on Nineveh. Maybe he'd get lucky there'd be an earthquake. Who knows? Maybe a little fire. He was looking forward to it. And this is actually one of my favorite verses in the Bible because it just makes me laugh every time. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine and so that it withered. Have you ever had days like that? You feel like God's provided a worm to the plans that you had? And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. Thank you. You provided a worm, and now you provided a scorching east wind. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. It sounds like a four-year-old here, doesn't he? But the Lord said, You've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, and it died overnight. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? And that is actually how the book of Jonah ends. It ends with that question. Shouldn't I be concerned? And we never hear if Jonah goes, yeah, I guess. It just ends on the question. Whereas Jesus, when he rises, he gives words of hope. He says, while they were still talking about this, being the disciples after they heard from Mary, Magdalene, that, that she had seen Jesus in the garden. Then Jesus himself stood among them and said to him, Peace be with you. And they were startled and frightened, thinking they would saw a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your minds? Look at my hands and feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed him his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe, interestingly, because of joy and amazement, it's too good to be true, in other words, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and he ate it in their presence. And you've probably heard said many times, he doesn't do this because he's hungry necessarily, but it's to show that he's not a ghost, that, that he'll eat it and then the fish doesn't just fall through to the floor. He's, he's a body. He's, he's real. And he said to them, this, this is what I told you when I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that has been written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand 
the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is was written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. And you are witnesses to these things. And this comes finally to the Great Commission, something that we talk about all the time here at IDCD. Our mission is to reach the lost and make disciples. And where does that come from? It comes from this passage. Jesus came to him and said, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so as we look at the sign of Jonah being a, a comparison of opposites, we also find that our faith, especially in this world's values, is a comparison of opposites. Our faith is made more clear when it's held to the opposite expectations of the world. And sometimes that can be a bit of a burden. It can be, it can be difficult. And we're all in the room together. We're all humans. We all live in the same world. We know that it can be difficult at times to live in a world that has values that are the very opposite of everything we believe. For example, the world says that we should live for ourselves. But we find that in Jesus Christ, we find that life truly begins only after we're willing to die to ourselves. That living for ourselves is empty. But when we die to self and allow Christ to live in us, then we begin to start on that journey of discovering what life is to truly be. I have been crucified with Christ and no longer live, the Apostle Paul writes. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The world tells us that death is the end. But because of Jesus, we have the expectation of hope. The expectation of hope. Hope, as it's written in, Christian, in the Christian literature, is not wishful thinking. Hope is expectation. So we have an expectation of hope and eternity. And again, from the scriptures, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, that death to self, so that in order as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, that death to self, that death to sin, then we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. The world tells us to indulge ourselves in the cesspool of sin, in all that the world offers. But because of Jesus, we are made righteous. And we are to live as we have been made. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Remember that the next time you are tempted into a place of sin, that you are called to be the righteousness of God. And you have actually been given that already through the grace of God. Live what you are, not what the world tells you you are. The world says that you have nothing special to offer. You're just one of eight billion people on the planet. But because of Jesus, we know that we have a message of hope and life. And every single one of those who are believers in Christ are to bear that message of hope and life. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ 
and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. Our ministry, your ministry, is to introduce people to their God and to explain away all the nonsense that the world teaches about God. And if you want to hear the nonsense that the world teaches about God, just go on YouTube and you can hear it from all kinds of opinions. And most of it is completely nonsensical. And yet people believe it. Your place is to be light. You are to shed light in that darkness to bring about truth. You are an ambassador of reconciliation. And so as we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, we celebrate his uniqueness in every way. We celebrate his unique love. We celebrate his unique sacrifice. We celebrate the unique way that that love and sacrifice can change human lives. And you are the examples of that life changed. You are the witnesses. That the Holy Spirit of God is still alive and well and still dwells among man to this day. 2,000 years separate from the event of the cross, we still have the living God in our lives. And because we have the living God in our lives, we can say with the same kind of confidence that the Apostle Paul wrote years and years ago, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, nor the present or the future or any powers, neither height nor death nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for all that you have provided for us throughout the history of humanity, really. You prepared us for the Messiah. You showed us the futility of trying to find uh, the perfect righteous kingdom in our own governments and within our own selves. You showed us how corrupt we are, even in our best efforts, how sin corrupts everything that we lay our hand to. And then you gave us Jesus Christ, you yourself, the Word of God becoming flesh, dwelling among us, showing us what we could be, showing us what the vision of hope is, the reason why we were created to be in this, to be not a people that are struggling with hate and prejudice and violence against toward one another, not a, not a place where we're supposed to have the super rich and the super poor and everyone in between just trying to fight to get theirs, but, Lord, that we are to be a community of love and hope and faith and joy and forgive us for the times that the church which is to represent your body your bride this community of love and hope the times that the church has fallen and shown itself to be in some ways at times even more disappointing than the ways of the world and yet within that you extend to us your grace you extend your hope you extend your forgiveness and Lord, may we not take it lightly, may we not use it as an excuse to sin, but may we see it as a reason to get back up from our places of falling and to continue to run the race with our eyes toward you. Because you are not just a good man who died and whose memory is that of a guy that tried to have a different way of doing things and was crushed by the world, but rather you are the one who gave himself so that we can be freed from the bondage of sin, that the debt could be paid. And then you rose again to show that you were more than that good man and that you were not delusional, that you were indeed the very word of God made flesh, resurrected to new life, and the one to whom we can look forward to as an example of our own eternal future. And because of that, we can walk through this life without fear. Because everything that happens in this life is but just a temporary dust in the wind compared to what is in eternity. 
And we thank you that we have the hope that is found in the eternal Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the resurrection, for what it means to us. And may we live resurrected lives in the world around us, being ambassadors of reconciliation, being a people who are aware of the righteousness that has been given to us through Jesus Christ, not by ourselves, not by our own works, but by your grace. And may we live in those extraordinary ways of generosity and love. And may we be salt and light. Help us in this to glorify you. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for the empty cross and the empty tomb. And we thank you for the full eternity that we hope for and look forward to in Jesus Christ. Amen.